0: Support for this program is provided by Chevron, the human energy company. This is Politico Energy. I'm Josh Siegel. Dozens of red states are set to receive massive benefits from President Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. But that means several Republican governors are kinda in an awkward position. On one hand, these governors welcome their slice of the $370 billion pot of clean energy incentives that are coming their way. But that also puts them in conflict with their party because Republicans in Congress and the party's likely presidential nominee, Donald Trump, are threatening to repeal the IRA. So today, I wanted to speak with someone who could see both sides of the coin, Representative Kelly Armstrong of North Dakota. See, he's looking to make the jump from Congress to governor of North Dakota after he leaves his seat in January. So I chatted with him about congressional issues like the IRA, permitting, and Biden's LNG pause, and also broader topics like why Republicans are leaving Congress and how he envisions running North Dakota. Here's our extended conversation with Congressman Armstrong. It's Tuesday, February 20th. Congressman Armstrong thanks for joining us. So, wanted to start with the news of the day, of course, and House Republicans voting last week on a bill that would essentially overturn Biden's pause on new LNG exports. You know, Republicans have kind of cast this as a ban, but there are, I mean, as far as projects through the queue, I mean, there's a half a dozen projects that would be set to double our export capacity. So, why do you, isn't it worthwhile to really just take a look at what is this all this LNG mean for domestic prices, what does it mean for climate?
1: Well, first of all, if they wanna do it, they should follow the law. This isn't even a rule, this isn't anything. This is violating congressional law, which says they have, I mean, they're presumed to have a public need and they're just saying, we're gonna put a pause on it. We don't know what that means. Long-term, what it means right now, when you have the conflict in the Ukraine, you have Russia, you have other places building out infrastructure, as far as everywhere goes, and you're sending signals to the market and sending signals to our allies all across the world that we're not a reliable source of LNG, which is, again, contrary to Congress's intent and in being able to provide cheap, affordable LNG to our allies instead of them getting it from our adversaries.
0: But would you agree in the short term, at least, our allies are you know okay with the amount of Yeah, but that's not know. how capital infrastructures
1: work. I mean, they have to decide where they're gonna move pipelines, how they're gonna do it, right? Spain can onboard about 25% of Europe's LNG, but they have the same problem. They don't have the infrastructure to get it from the onboarding facility. So as countries are looking to decouple from Russia, they're going to be looking at how they build out their infrastructure. And when the United States says, and this administration says, hold on, we might not do these next projects, particularly from an administration that every step of the way since they've come into office has done everything they can to demonize and vilify
0: this industry. Switching gears, your home state of North Dakota, like many other Republican states, I mean, it's seeing some benefits from the Inflation Reduction Act and the subsidies in there. Particularly, I wanted to talk about Project Tundra. Absolutely. We're one of two states with EPA primacy. There are things
1: in the Inflation Reduction Act that we agree with. There are a lot more things that we disagree with, right? 45Q and making sure that we can use lignite energy to actually provide heat and power to North Dakota in the wintertime is part of those things that are great. But when you counteract those to some of the other renewable credits and how the other things worked in that bill, it didn't work out real well.
0: Yeah, on 45Q, that's, of course, you know, a big expansion of that was in the IRA. So given that, I mean, what would you say? I mean, if you're in the position of governor in North Dakota, would it be a mistake for a, let's say there's a Trump presidency, full Republican control to repeal that if a project in your state could see benefits from
1: the IRA? Oh, I think there's plenty of things in the IRA they should repeal. I don't think 45Q and direct pay is one of them. I I mean, I think that's the problem when you put a monstrosity of a bill together that encourages all of those things. I I think there are a lot of places to listen. We were, I mean, guys like Garrett Graves and I were telling people, you're putting the tax credits in the wrong space. And you and I have had this conversation before. You can give a renewable, I mean, uh, like community solar or small scale projects, all the tax credits you want. But if you don't have the transmission infrastructure to plug them in, you're going to create a natural market cap on those things.
0: But couldn't these long-term tax credits, I mean, for renewables, including wind, I mean, also benefit North Dakota, given you are seeing a lot of wind. I mean, that you're becoming a top wind-producing state. You're already top 10 in wind. You know, Republicans were late
1: to game on climate, and I've been critical of that and not understanding the political science that was engaged in it. The problem is now we take into the the all-of-the-above energy portfolio, and we use the catchword too. All-of-the-above works, provided the pie chart stays reasonable. Because when renewable power that's granted primacy on the grid and allowed to ramp up and wrap down whenever it wants gets to be too big in the pie chart, then my coal and natural gas facilities can't economically make it. And that might not seem like a big deal, but it's a really big deal because they have to make money every single day of the year, all year long.
0: Turning to permitting reform. I mean, you touched on transmission earlier. But I mean, this is an area we've we've been focusing a lot on the Hill. But given, I mean, you're leaving Congress, so are a number of other influential Republicans. I mean, don't you think the time is kind of now to get get something done, especially when it comes to capitalizing on this carbon capture potential in North Dakota and becoming this true all the above energy state, as you mentioned?
1: So we led a, a bipartisan CODEL to COP in Dubai. And I, one thing that I think is really weird in this entire metric is there's a real bipartisan support for nuclear permitting reform. I think the one place where we may actually get something done by the end of this Congress is in nuclear permitting reform. And by the way, if you care about carbon and you care about dispatchable power, this comes from a state that's very oil, gas and coal related. But there could be a lot of different issues to do that. Scott Peters and I have had a lot of conversations on permitting reform. There's been a lot of that going back and forth. But traditionally, we've thought about the cost share allocation and a lot of those different points to it. I think one of the biggest differences on permitting that we have to figure out how to get around is... Republicans are fairly agnostic towards infrastructure. We don't care if it's a transmission line, a highway, a bridge, or a pipeline. We know we need to get more infrastructure in the ground. Too many of my colleagues on the other side want to give favored nations clauses to renewable permitting reform, and we got to figure out what that looks
0: like. So why not you know, work on like, a grand bargain type of thing that, that helps pipelines, that helps transmission, that helps nuclear. I mean, again, you know, Manchin's retiring over in the Senate. This is a priority for him. I mean, couldn't this- Well, one, it's yeah. expensive figuring out how to pay for it when you're $34
1: trillion in debt. And two, is making sure that, I mean, I will support permitting reform that treats all different energy sources equally. So far, I have yet to see a grand bargain that does that.
0: Yeah, I mean, on transmission, I mean, clearly this is the priority of the Democrats. You mentioned it earlier. I mean, it's something you're thinking about. I mean, that we know that transmission has its own- particular complexities with citing given interstate nature and just how there's an opportunity for different localities to come in and stop the process. I mean yeah, it's linear infrastructure, right? You don't have to stop it everywhere. You just have to stop it in one spot. Yeah, so shouldn't
1: that be rectified? I mean You think citing a pipeline's controversial, live in a wealthy suburb in New Hampshire and have a high voltage transmission line go through your neighborhood and devalue every house in that neighborhood by 40% the minute you put a shovel in the ground. These are real consequential things that we have to figure out the right balance between being able to build that infrastructure and also make sure that we aren't stamping on local governments and states' rights and local communities' rights.
0: Why not give equal treatment to pipelines and transmission with FERC, for example? I mean, is there something on transmission that you think could be helpful that Republicans might be able to get behind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we have to figure out a better way to do it. I, I, again, I think you have a lot of different ways. I think, one, we have to figure out the cost share allocation, because that's been the traditional fight. Even outside of the normal toxic times in D.C., that's been the fight and always has been towards what it does, and then figuring out the best way and citing authority to deal with it.
0: But I mean, why do you think other, I mean, have you talked to other Republicans about transmission and cost allocation? How?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of it, right, is we work so hard to get the NEPA reform done. We did HR one, which had some of these things in cross-border permitting. And then we go through the uh, debt ceiling increase and get what I think is going to be long-term, really substantial NEPA reform, which will affect all permitting and all infrastructure projects. And then you turn around and you, I mean, you deal with whatever five-second chaos mess we have in this town every two weeks.
0: Got it. And then just turning more specifically to some North Dakota issues. So the current governor, Doug Burgum, who, of course, was in the Republican primary for presidential, he set a goal for your state to be carbon neutral by 2030. Do you support that goal?
1: Yeah, I think as far as goals go, it's great. We have some advantages, right? We have EPA primacy. I always get a little concerned when we talk about carbon neutral, because when I hear carbon neutral, a lot of times I hear about an artificial government construct that trades like a commodity, like a carbon credit.
0: But how how realistic is it, though? I mean... By 2030... I guess the way it's framed, though, the way Burgum has framed it is very much around carbon capture and carbon sequestration. But I mean, you still have a ton of coal on your grid. like, And we're going
1: to have coal on our grid. We have to. I mean, it is the most reliable. And when you deal with that, I think the more important part of how Governor Burgum has framed that is innovation, not regulation, and making sure that we have an ability to do this through the marketplace. I say this all the time, and I say this to people who are skeptical of these kind of things in North Dakota. We have to do a better job of explaining why we have the cleanest MCF of gas and the cleanest barrel of oil. But we should always work to reduce carbon, one, because again, consumers are demanding it, two, because it helps the atmosphere, and three, because we already do
0: it about as cleanly as you can. Do you see all that coal by 2030 having some sort of carbon capture? No,
1: but I also see us burning coal by 2030. That's where I say we get into different conversations about what carbon neutral actually means.
0: Turning to Burgum for a second more. I mean, yeah, he did endorse Trump when he left the presidential race. Do you expect him to get a spot in Trump's cabinet in an energy role, given he's so interested in that topic? And would you welcome that?
1: Boy, I would hope so. I mean, I think the one thing about Governor Burgum and somebody who's got to know him very well, both in the state Senate and Congress is, I mean, he could be interior, he could be energy, he could be commerce, he could be involved anywhere in the tech space. He's been fantastic for North
0: Dakota and would be an asset to any administration. And just turning to, you know, you leaving Congress, I mean, it's part of kind of this broader trend we have seen. I mean, Republicans and Democrats, but particularly the House Energy and Commerce Committee, where your vice chair, I mean, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, the chair, recently announced she's not running for re-election. I mean, what do you attribute kind of this mass exodus to?
1: Oh, I don't know for anybody else. I attribute it to us being surprised. We all were hopeful that Governor Brigham would run for a third term. I thought he was do a great job. But I mean, for me, when you represent the whole state, I mean, I just think that The governor of North Dakota is the best political job in the world. I do think, and this is in the weeds a little bit, but it's an energy podcast. So if you believe, as I do, that the Chevron doctrine and agency deference is probably going to be in a little bit of trouble at the Supreme Court. I think there are unique opportunities for states like North Dakota to get very aggressive on an overburdened federal federal regulatory regime. And I'm excited to do that.
0: On the EPA's power sector rule, though, I mean, I know... They tried to stay, I mean, with their proposal to stay inside the fence line. And there's a big push, you know, in there a requirement for carbon capture. I mean, so couldn't that, I mean, you're a proponent of carbon capture. Sure, but
1: they're also letting NGOs do the enforcement on methane. And they're doing all of these uh, different issues and a lot of different things that we are going to continue to push back on. I mean, there's a reason we get bipartisan for support for some of these CRAs. And some of this is Congress's fault. And that's one of the things I hope if the Chevron doctrine gets overthrown. We need to take back the legislating authority. The vast majority of things that affect my energy producers and my farmers and ranchers in North Dakota
0: aren't new law. They're new regulation. And just back to the Energy and Commerce Committee yeah. Republicans leave. I mean, I know I know you were speaking for yourself, but I mean, I'm wondering if you can reflect on I feel like the people a lot of the people who are leaving are in a similar mold. They've been here a decent amount of time. They're kind of I mean, you're someone who who's can be bipartisan. I mean, you're a, yeah. a serious legislator. I mean, are you are you concerned that people like you, people like CMR, um, yeah, are leaving?
1: Worry, I worry about that. Well, first of all, I think every there's 435 of us, and I think all of us would say we're essential to the Congress operating, which truly is not the case. But yeah, I mean, I think longer term we have to spend a I mean, and I said this, by the way, in my speech when they were – kicking my friend Kevin McCarthy out of the speakership. I'm like the incentive structure in this town is broken. We need to figure out how we can attract more serious people to run for this and not as many people that are more interested in online fundraising and getting clicks and more about getting policy done. And I worry about that all the time. But I think I worry about that in state governments. I worry about that in Congress. I worry about it everywhere. I've always said I'm on a never
0: ending quest to prove you don't have to be crazy to be conservative. I'm McCarthy, real quick. I mean, you're obviously were a close ally. And, and he's someone who put permitting like front and center. I mean, any any concern that Speaker Johnson, I mean, it doesn't seem like he has as much. I know he's Louisiana, but he doesn't have as much energy background. It's not, you know, he's more like a security. I mean, I think that's one of his issues. But I mean that you're just don't on that focus without McCarthy here.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I I think part of that is I've been here long enough to recognize you get one heavy lift to Congress. We did HR one. We got a bunch of the NEPA reform melded in. It took I mean, I was on a plane, flew back here Memorial Day weekend to help negotiate that as we were trying to get it done. I think long term you will see what that looks like. I mean, in you know, in the energy space, we still got August Pfluger. We've got a lot of good people that are serious about it in the energy and commerce. And there's been I mean, you know, there's a lot of partisanship that comes to energy. I mean, there just is right now, but there's also a lot of bipartisanship in working forward.
0: And just one more, because you mentioned yeah. n- nuclear earlier. I yeah. mean, so that it because Congressman Duncan, we had a podcast who's also leaving Congress. He did mention nuclear as maybe the area you can see bipartisan action this year. Yeah. So when we were over
1: in Dubai for COP, it was really interesting. One area where we actually have bipartisan support, the U.S. is on nuclear regulatory reform. And when you talk to other countries, they have varying degrees of aversion to nuclear. It was just a really interesting thing that I didn't expect. I think we have the opportunity to do something there. And by the way, if you want carbon-free energy, nuclear is the answer right now.
0: What do you attribute that to? Why do you think nuclear is nuclear? I mean, we're, we're, the broader permitting issues is so partisan, but nuclear regulatory reform.
1: I think some of, a lot of my Democratic colleagues are misguided on the speed in which they think this stuff can occur. But I don't think they're intellectually dishonest are unintelligent people. And if you're not intellectually dishonest and you're a smart person, nuclear has to be a part of this energy mix if you care about carbon and you care about dispatchable power and they know that as well.
0: Thank you, Congressman Armstrong for joining us. Appreciate it. No, thank you for doing this. This is always fun. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our free newsletter at politico.com power dash switch. And subscribe to Politico Pro to read our Morning Energy newsletter. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And that's our show. I'm Josh Siegel, and we'll see you back tomorrow. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. And they're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane.